You know, Andy, here we are, supposedly one of the most remote locations in the continental United States, certainly one of the most remote locations yep. in Oregon, and they're bitching about those cocksuckers from Portland. Yeah, that's really disappointing. That's really disappointing. But, you know, just because you're from Portland doesn't mean you're not an asshole. <laughs> there you go. Your Portlandness doesn't negate your assholeness. <laughs> It is August 2014, and the people of Oregon are sick of your lefty liberal bullshit, Portland. This is some kick-ass Oregon history. Welcome to another installment of Kick-Ass Oregon History, a survey created by the geeked out history folks at ORHistory.com. I'm your host, Andy Lindbergh, and under the guidance of resident historian Doug Kank Crispin, we profile only the most badass, captivating Oregon stories. It's all Oregon sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth-shattering, devastating destruction. Basically, the good stuff. Kick-Ass Oregon History is a presentation of ORHistory.com and is supported by listeners like you. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit ORHistory.com and click Donate. I was surprised, as always, by how easy the act of leaving was and how good it felt. The world was suddenly rich with possibility. When last we heard from our intrepid travelers, dear ass kicker, we were in McDermott, the southeasternmost town in Oregon. With nowhere else to go, we drove north, to the middle of fucking nowhere. Took a left and drove some more until the pavement ended. Then we drove another 20 miles or so on that gravel road and we ended up at one of the oddest, most pristine sections of Oregon, the Alvor Desert and the hot springs that you'll find there. Usually, the covered wagon pioneers in the 1800s avoided the Alvord. It was, of course, inhospitable, with luscious valleys and hydrated plains just a little further on. But by avoiding the Alvord, they missed out on a lovely, temporary respite. We, however, did not. Bubbling out of the ground at 174 degrees, the water in the Alvord hot springs is cooled by the time it reaches the tanks. But by cool, we still mean a fucking hot 100 to 110 degrees. I know. Sitting in a tub full of hot water in the middle of the desert. Sounds fun, huh? Well, actually, it was. A simple wooden deck 
and a corrugated metal shack covers the concrete pools of hot water. Washing machine tubs are submerged in the pools to offer seats for the bathers. A 1920s description of Alvord Ranch reads, Alvord Ranch lies in a setting not soon to be forgotten. To the west rise the rugged eastern slope of the Steens Mountains, nearly a mile to the top from the floor of the desert. It looked like we could almost reach out and touch the elusive range, yet the mountains were several miles away. To the east, not more than two miles, was Alvord Desert, twenty miles long and ten miles wide, perfectly flat and level, and absolutely devoid of life. It's hard to not feel like you're on an alien landscape in the Alvord. Everything is so unique, so stark. It's rugged and timeless, but it isn't alien because this is us. This place is Oregon. It should be familiar, a part of our heritage, a part of our story, even if that story does get a little woo-woo. Have you seen any change in your body since you've been coming into the spring? I, I, I feel pretty good all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I'm lucky that way. Yeah. You know, I have a few aches and pains as you saw. I mean, I've got mosquitoes mainly, but... <laughs> um, I'm curious about the medicinal... Uh, effects of this? Yeah. Don't be afraid of the woo-woo. That, that's the... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it, it is there. Yeah, yeah. However it works, it's there. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I feel wonderful. I really do. According to the BLM's informative brochure on the region, tens of thousands of years back, the Alvord was a giant lake, 200 feet deep. Which is cool and all, but a 1920s description, correct or not, sounds much cooler. Alvord Desert is a result of two geological situations. First, it apparently became barren when snow water at one time or another settled in this pan-shaped depression and drowned out every bit of sagebrush and greasewood. Second, after the plant life was killed off, the desert remained absolutely desolate because it is sheltered from moisture-bearing winds by the Steens Mountains, which collect all available moisture on their western slope. That is why the western slope of the range is streaked with rivers and deep gorges, while the eastern slope is dry as the famous bone. Yet, A.E. Brown told us that when he came to that country nearly 40 years ago, he was forced to ride a horse stirrup deep through water over what is now the desert. But oddly enough, this godforsaken desert was home to one of the most unique Oregon industries we have had the pleasure to come across. And oddly for our survey, there doesn't seem to be much illicitness about said concern. No, in fact, it was quite clean. You might say, squeaky clean. Now there's a new kind of clean for both kinds of dirt. The dirt you can see and the dirt you can smell. Clothing odor. 
20 Mule Team Borax has been improved. Now it's Boratim, the activated 20 Mule Team Borax. Use new Boratim with your favorite detergent. It not only gets the all your laundry cleaner, most cleaner, prosperous brighter, days were in the 1890s and the first few years of the 1900s, when borax operations in the nearby Alvord Valley were at a peak level. The mining consisted of Chinese laborers scooping up crude borax from the dry lake beds. After being refined and crystallized, the pure borax was sacked and loaded onto wagons. Borax trains of five wagons drawn by twenty mules were common sights in fields, Denio, and all the way to Winnemucca, Nevada, the rail shipping point. Friedman does this. He gives you a little slice, just enough to make you think, huh, that sounds interesting, but not much more than that. And then later, when you're reading about it, usually later in the day or a while later when you're real far away, you go, shit, because there's so much more to the story than the old man laid out. Yes, he usually sums it up in a sentence, the ultimate editor, a trait often lost in today's self-published books, but the story is often much, much deeper than that. And so it was with the Alvord's Borax production. In 1897, two men bought some alkali flats near the Alvord Lake, and the 20 Mule Team Borax Company was born. Over the next 10 years, they established a sizable borax business. They brought in Chinese laborers who would rake the flats for minerals, which were then collected and hauled by wagons to two huge 6,000-gallon vats. The salts were dumped in, and hot water from the springs at Hot Lake would be stirred in too. However, they needed to make it even hotter. And remember, there are no trees for miles and miles in this area of Oregon to use as fuel. So sagebrush was piled up and burned under the vats. The slurry would come to a boil. Then, laborers would stir this wort with rakes. The mix would then be dumped into 24 galvanized tanks that were about 1,200 gallons each. Racks would be hung in the tank, and over a period of six days, crystals would clump together on the racks and the sides of the tank. These would be drained, and the laborers would enter the tanks with wooden mallets and chip off the crystals. The crystals would then be stuffed into 90-pound sacks and hauled to Winnemucca. It was 300 miles round trip, and often took two weeks. Visualize the desert. Dry, vast, hot as balls. Chinese workers raking and chiseling and lifting all goddamn day, loading wagons with sacks of coarse dust in a heat that would make most of us on the Western Cascades simply dry up and blow away. Now, haul a wagon train of three wagons filled with borax sacks and coupled together across your imaginary desert. Go ahead, give it a try. 
not working? Okay. Would twenty mules help you halt? Now, picture you're plodding, tired, beasts of burden, covered in fine white dust, hauling a former ore wagon loaded to the limit with sacks of borax. Packed full, the trains would originate from the Alvord and head along a southern route to Winnemucca, Nevada. Some of the trains would carry forty thousand fucking pounds of borax. In 1902, the annual output was said to have been 360 tons, or technically, an imperial shit ton of borax. The borax sold in Nevada for eight or nine cents a pound. Hope ran high that Oregon might have some of the richest borax deposits in the world, and that a sustainable industry would be born. There were, however, some complications. The good old Twenty Mule Team Borax Company soon found itself in some hot water—not the kind fueled by sagebrush fires, but the kind of hot water involving lawyers and judges. See, there was this other institution that called itself Twenty Mule Team Borax Company, from fucking California. Of course, and they sued our Twenty Mule Team Borax Company, and since the Oregon Twenty Mule Team Borax Company hadn't trademarked their name, the fucking California Twenty Mule Team Borax Company won. So Oregon's, the real Twenty Mule Team Borax Company, was no more, at least in name. The Alvord area. Was a hell of a place to run a business, but when you run a borax business, you gotta go where the sodium borate is, right? It just so happens that this stretch of country saw temperatures that ranged from 30 below in the winter to 110 degrees in the summer, and again, not a goddamn tree in sight. Some have said that if it weren't for the Chinese laborers, this venture would have never seen the light of day. But continue they did until it just became too much, and post lawsuit, the newly named Rose Valley Borax Company stopped harvesting the desert in 1907. Miles from nowhere, guess I'll take my time. Oh yeah, to reach there, look up at the mountain. Feel. An old stagecoach and freighting station on the east end of a parched valley separating Steens Mountain from the 8,545-foot-high Pueblo Mountains. Fields is a most interesting scene: general store, cafe, four-unit motel, one-room schoolhouse, stagecoach stable of local rock materials. Post office in a trailer, sod house, sagebrush cemetery, windmill, and airfield. Planes taxi down the dusty street to park—a rather unusual sight, but typical of the frontier character of this deep hinterland village, which receives mail only twice a week.
According to the 2010 United States Census, Harney County is the 41st least populated county in the country. And that includes parts of Alaska which are only ice and whalebone. The official population count is 0.73 people per square mile. But that's not the same as remote, right? We're not terribly fond of list articles, but Listosaur has Southeast Oregon as the number one most remote place in the contiguous United States. And it seems like it's always been like that, unless you're counting jackrabbits. Jackrabbits are eating up the country. At night, they squat on the ground around your campfire until it looks as though they were planning a raid on the camp. Someone put out poison. And there are places where the road is almost paved with dead rabbits, which have been ground under the wheels of machines. There are thousands of them left, however, and poor homesteaders make pretty good wages trapping them at a nickel apiece. Most, welcome to Fields, the most remote place in the continental United States. Population 12. 12, huh? So do all you guys work here or at the school? Uh, no, actually most of them are ranchers. I am not a part of the population. I am a part of Princeton's population, which is really weird because I, li I only live 20 miles from here, but 60 miles from Princeton. Do you guys get a lot of tourists here at Fields? Oh yeah, people from all over the world. Yeah. Uh, we had a we had two guys fly in from Amarillo, Texas. Each had their own plane, flew in, landed just down the road, taxied in, got a burger and shake. That was the whole point of them coming here. They heard about it all over. The, I mean, they were in travel guides of Houston, Oregon and everything. And they fueled up their planes right here and then took off. Wow. Went back home. That's great. Yeah. That's great. Uh, had a French couple in here not too long ago. And, uh, well, I think the kids are ready for some shakes. Yeah. My name's yeah. Doug. Doug, name's Woody. Woody, nice yep. to meet you. Good to Woody. meet you too, man. Yeah, we do a radio program in uh, in Portland on uh, 91.1. It's called uh, Kick-Ass Oregon History. Okay. And so we just kind of tell exciting stories from Oregon's past. And so we've just been on a road trip, just kind of going to some of the historic spots. And, well, and, that, and Fields is on the list. Yeah, so. uh, established 1881. Um, used to be a two-story building, uh, circa 1955. The top story burnt. And so they took it out, yeah. um, and it's it's your little. I mean, it's everything. We've got a store, a cafe, a tire shop, RV park, motel units. It's an information center. And, um, the owners, Tom and Sandy, have owned it for the last ten years, and they've been Harney County residents for thirty. So they know the know the whole area like the back of their hand, and it's it's nice. Thanks a lot. Yeah, Oregonian writer it. Terry yeah, Richards labels imbibing on a self-proclaimed world-famous milkshake at Fields as a rite of passage for Portland yuppies. Is Fields Station the most remote or unpopulated or something spot in the continental U.S.? What makes a burger or a shake world-famous? Is it just how hard it is to get a foodstuff? Flavor field, thank you. Yeah, uh, sorry, uh, do you want a coffee? Sir? Uh, no, thank you. So, Sandy, can I ask you a question? I see a mic there. Yeah, I, 
what is the question of it? So, how how do you make a world famous hamburger? You start with real beef, no soy, no additive, and you just hand pat them out. They're all hand patted out. How many burgers do you cook a day? One day I cooked 43 the other day. And yeah. as you can see our count, it tells you where we're at. Some they days, look lovely. Some days you'll cook a hundred. It just depends, you know, but that doesn't count all the BLTs, grilled cheese. Chocolate. Everything else they have doing too. Sorry. It's fun. It's fun. So is it local beef? No, no you can't no. use it because it has uh, to be USDA inspected. So they got you. Well, I can't wait. Thank you. You're welcome. According to the Burns Times Herald, the shakes are touted in tourist brochures in Europe. That's right. Europeans seek out these shakes. So they must be good, right? At Field Station, it seemed perfectly clear that they wanted to keep things just as they are and always have been. They like you to drop your Multnomah County dollars here on burgers and shakes and shot glasses and gas, but they want you to keep your progressive Portland principles to yourself. And that's just fucking fine with us here at Kick-Ass Oregon History. Careful. You're out of Portland, you said? Yep. You know what? And what's that? Here, you at least see what you have. 
Yeah, no, that's great. I would Thank like you. the general public to be aware of that. Thank you very much. We'll, well make sure they you. are. Yeah, Appreciate definitely. It. Thanks. Thanks. But it makes sense, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, He was driving home one evening in his beat-up Pontiac When an old lady flagged him down, her Mercedes had a flat He could see that she was frightened, standing out there in the snow Till he said, I'm here to help you, ma'am, by the way, my name's Joe she said I'm from St. Louis. Heading into the little town of French Glen, we noticed that the Honda Element was pulling a little weird, and Doug couldn't accelerate at his normally snappy old lady speed. So we pulled over at the hotel and discovered a serious flat tire. Ah, uh, French Glen, we couldn't think of a more historic breakdown spot. And in the 95 degree heat, the wheel well and the undercarriage of the car covered in fresh cow shit from driving through the Harney County traffic jam we'd experienced, it was truly a magic moment. The spare took us to Burns, and after a friendly stop at the Les Schwab Tire Center there, we were on our way. And yes, we did our best to consume $700 worth of, quote, free salty popcorn and shitty coffee. We probably did closer to 650. The Chinese opium dens of John Day have been raided. The chinks were told to take their choice of closing their joints or leaving town. The Hepner Gazette, 1903. A visit to John Day is incomplete without a tour of Cam Wa Chung, or the Golden Flower of Prosperity, as it is translated. Established in 1871, as National Park Service documents state, the building shows the cultural, work, and social lives of early Chinese immigrants who helped to build the American West. Welcome to Cam Wa Chung. The doors you just entered are a gateway into the world of Ying Dok Hei and Long An, the Chinese immigrants who purchased this unique building in 1888. As the door is closed, let your eyes adjust to the relative darkness and take in everything around you. As you may have noticed on your way in, the front door has been pierced by bullets. A grim reminder of the hardships and racism endured by Chinese workers in America. The tin and steel plating, combined with steel accordion doors, kept Doc Hay, Lung On, and their visitors safe within the confines of Cam Wa Chung. Throughout your tour, look at all the details and items within the building. Epigrams, the red Chinese handwriting on the walls, the calendars, the books, the utensils, the shrines. They were all left in the building when Lung An and Da Kei died. 
Um, the upper lines that are on the wall, the red uh, papers with the black writing. Uh, there's 250 throughout the building. Uh, we do have a little pamphlet over at the front desk if you want to look at it and see what they do say. As a successful Chinese business in eastern Oregon, the proprietors of Cam Wa Chung, Lung An, and Doc Ng Hei faced rampant racism from their white neighbors. An 1889 advertisement for lodging in John Day demonstrates this racism. American Hotel, E.P. Lovejoy, proprietor, John Day, Oregon. No Chinese employed about the premises. Every effort will be made to please guests and make them feel welcome. Stop at the American. In 1888, the Hepner Weekly Gazette noted, The report comes over from John Day that a Chinese boarder was shot at over there a few days ago because he was on a range claimed by Stockman and refused to move. And these were not isolated incidents against just individuals. Racist violence could affect the entire community. A bit of an ominous little scribble appeared in the Grant County News in August of 1889. Under the heading of John Day Dashes, the paper simply noted that peace has been restored in Chinatown. After they moved down here for a while, uh, it was really quiet and um, we can't lean on anything. Sorry. Thanks. And um, anyway, um, uh, there was some people, and I call them ruffians, uh, that came into town and they were always creating problems wherever they went. Well, they went uptown one day and got liquored up and come down here and shot up Chinatown. And the people that were on the streets um, died for no reason, uh, just that somebody wanted to have some fun. And uh, this uh, started happening uh, quite a bit. And then when Doc Hay and Long On bought this building um, in 1887, uh, they uh, said, oh my gosh, what's going on? And so um, they, uh, had turned it into the authorities, but it didn't seem like they could catch him doing it. Uh, and nobody really knew, you know, who they were. Uh, and um, because they were so frightened down here whenever the shooting started. And they would just ride their horses as fast as they could uh, in this cul-de-sac. They'd ride, ride down one side and ride back up the other side. Doc Hay died in 1952 and Cam Wa Chung was sold by his nephew to the city of John Day under the condition that they preserve the site as a museum. Then the building just kind of sat there until 1967, when it was essentially rediscovered. It was then deeded from the city to Oregon Parks and Recreation in 1975 and opened as a museum two years later. Cam Wa Chung was designated a National Historic Landmark in 2007, thus proving that Cam Wa Chung is historic as fuck. One of the very cool things about visiting Cam Wa Chung is that with very few exceptions, all the items on display, what public historians call 
physical resources, were found in the house when it was opened up in 1967. Nothing was carted in just because it looked old-timey, like you might find in the Pendleton Underground Tour. It was all original at Kamwachung. It's an astounding collection, and the Oregon State Parks has done a wonderful job walking that fine line that separates preservation of the physical resources and providing public access to them. At times, the proprietors of the business were accepted by the predominantly white community of John Day. Lung An was once described in the Hepner Gazette as a very intelligent Chinaman. In his 59 years that he operated out of the building, Doc Hay was attributed with saving over 6,000 lives. Their impact on the Caucasian and Chinese populations of eastern Oregon was often regarded as positive. But the feel-good accepted by the white folk sentiment towards Doc Hay and Lung An was not always the status quo. In 1904, the concern was regarded as the Chinese nuisance, and Lung An was reportedly arrested for selling liquor to minors. The reporter pointed out that Kamwa Chung was dependent upon white patronage for support. It noted that just a dozen or so Chinese still lived in the area at the time, and that they were old men, tired and broke. The whole establishment of this company is a most foul Chinese joint, if reports are to be believed. Inspector Barber of the Immigration Office in Portland characterized it as the worst he ever saw, not excepting the dens of San Francisco. City officials and disgusted citizens have pulled young chaps out of their dope beds at early morning hours and would have prosecuted the proprietors long before this, but the wily youngsters, fearing to lose their access to the place and adhering to the idea of loyalty, have stoutly refused to give evidence with which to convict. Some of the violence towards the Chinese men is then recounted by the reporter in a far too casual manner. About this time last fall, the matter grew so bad that attempts were made to burn the Chinaman out, but were unsuccessful. Another attempt of the same kind was made a few nights ago, but the blaze was discovered and put out by the watchful Chinese. Then, one of the boys, more wise than his fellows, gave the accused house away, and in his testimony swore that he had purchased liquor from Long An and paid for it with two fifty-cent silver pieces, a feeling of relief is felt in town, and it is hoped that the sentence will put him out of business. We were pleased that the Parks Department didn't sugarcoat the malice and violence faced by the Chinese community in Oregon. The Kamwa Chung Museum in John Day is a wonderful example of the varied histories of Oregon, our home. Oh, wings fly.
What's your road, man? Holy boy road, madman road, rainbow road, guppy road, any road. It's an anywhere road for anybody, anyhow. Where, body, As we have said again and again, is a beautiful land, but it has suffered at the hands of the careless, callous, and selfish, who in small or large ways have despoiled one square foot or many square miles. This we must never forget. The land is ours only temporarily. We keep it in trust for those who follow, if there is a time for following. Paraphrase Woody Guthrie. This land is your land. This land is my land. From the Redwood Forests to the Wallawa Highland. From Jordan Valley to the Western Sea. This land belongs to you and me. Ralph Friedman. the lookout for future podcasts from orhistory.com. We hope that you agree that today's episode featured some kick-ass Oregon history. Today's podcast was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Doug K. Crispin and Andy Lindbergh. Citations are available on request. Kick-ass Oregon history is on Twitter at Oregon underscore history. Follow us on Instagram at Kickass Oregon History. We're also on the Facebook. The email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com. Want more Kickass Oregon History in your life? Become a podcast supporter. Learn more at ORHistory.com. Just don't get too close to Mr. Kent Crispin. He's packing heat. You stay historic, Oregon. And kick ass. Yeah.
don't you start? One, two, three. Greg Applegate. Ristiro Roasters. Tori Zanzalori. Bill Lanchester. Tony Tansai. Austin Coop. Marilyn Lindbergh. Alex Ward. Eric White. Doug How How Halloway. Joshua Fisher. Jim Corvell. Roman Mars. Emily Loss John Ross Johnson. Dan Zalko. Don Chiselson. <laughs> Lizzie Katzen. Bever Beverly Schoonover. Le- Jim Keys. Brock Didis. Allison Carter. Tristan Lemons. Dallying Daly. Robert Crispin. Carol Foster. John Dyler. Louis Salloway. Rebecca Woodsmith. Heather Go- Gogan. John Quill Lee Master. Peter Lindbergh. Mike Vogel. Dave Lindbergh. Gary Lindbergh. William Reagan. Tammy Parr. Todd Dixon. Heather Arnett Anderson. Peter Archer. Thaddeus Cox. Is that really it? Where's Mike motherfucking Wyatt? That's his actual name. (laughs) (laughs) And Mike motherfucking Wyatt. history.com